Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to give a special welcome to all of our new listeners from over at Spotify. Yeah, we see you guys. Welcome. And just make sure you go and click that follow button. It'll make sure I am sitting in your feed day in, day out. You won't miss a thing. All right, on with the show. The news of the racist grocery store shooting in Buffalo reached journalist Wesley Lowry at a strange moment. For years, he's reported about race in this country. He won a Pulitzer for his reporting on police violence while he was over at the Washington Post. And he'd just finished up a new manuscript. I've been working now for a year or two on a book about the rise and increase in white supremacist violence in the decades since Barack Obama was elected and looking at various attacks that are driven by racist ideologies and also trying to sit with and think about this idea of how much of our mainstream political rhetoric uh, accelerates um, and empowers these ideologies. I'm kind of stuck on the irony of the fact that you were putting to bed this book that was about the increase in racist violence, and then the shooting happens. The timing is kind of eerie. Yeah, it's it's so, and I'll, and I'll be honest, I, I've had a real hard time finishing this book. Again, my editor somewhere is like, why are you on podcast right now and <laughs> finishing chapters? In part because the topic is difficult and the work is difficult. You've got to go to all these dark places in your head and think about how to do it and how to do it responsibly and do it well. I think that too often when we think about racism, when we think about white supremacy, we think about the individual racist. We think about our buddy in the group chat who's a little off color. We think about our uncle or aunt who says that thing at Thanksgiving that we don't like. That's the wrong way to think about it. We have to think about white supremacy as what it is, which is a coherent ideology and a worldview. The shooting in Buffalo seemed to prove Wesley's point. White racial violence is on the rise. And you can see that coherent ideology he's talking about if you read the alleged shooter's manifesto. A lot of it is a copy-paste job, borrowing from the documents other racist killers have published. But the fact that it's derivative, it just underlines the way this kind of hate is spreading. You could take chunks of this manifesto and say, who said it, a Fox News host or the racist shooter, and you might have some difficulty on some of it. Even though the shooter was saying, I reject conservatism, right? Well, he said, because you all haven't conserved anything, is what he said. He said, because you all suck at it. I feel like we're at this pivotal moment in terms of how we think about the story of what happened in Buffalo. Because as a journalist, you know this, like in the weeks after a tragedy like this, journalists and activists kind of decide what these events were about. Like, were they about gun control? Were they about online extremism? I'm kind of wondering if you think, when you look at how journalists, people in political power are talking about what happened in Buffalo, are they making 
the right choices when they decide what this event was about? I actually think that the choices have been better in Buffalo than they have been in prior conversations. I think sometimes there is a inclination for those of us who work in the news to everything needs to feel new and fresh and different. We want this to be this like internet thing and the internet is radical. And it's like, this is like old school clan stuff. This is about the people and about the ideology. It's not actually about the internet. It's not actually about Fox News or cable. It's about the, the reality that racism is extremely powerful and extremely attractive to a lot of folks. Today on the show, the roots of the Buffalo Massacre run deep. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking at the shooting in Buffalo, Wesley Lowry says it would be easy to think about the shooter here as a lone wolf. But it's also important to see how this crime fits into a pattern. The shooter's 180-page manifesto, a healthy chunk of it was lifted from a similar document released by the man who attacked mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand back in 2019. It refers again and again to the Great Replacement Theory. The false idea that white people are being replaced by other, inferior races. It's a theory that has been cited by the Tree of Life attacker in Pittsburgh and the man who walked into an El Paso Walmart to kill Latino people. And this many lone wolves, they start to look like a pack. What we see in the white supremacist movement a few decades ago is a shift. And so decades ago, one of the leaders in the white supremacist movement, Louis Beam, pens this essay where he's writing and he's talking about the idea of leaderless resistance. That for a long time, there was some level of hierarchical reality in the white supremacist movement. But what that meant is that law enforcement could infiltrate their groups, could hmm. flip somebody, could shut them down. After an attack, it, they could come and they could charge everybody in the group based on something, or they could be sued civilly in court. You saw groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center would do this for years. So being leaderless made the groups more resilient. Correct. And so their idea was, how do we put out as much propaganda as possible so that an individual white person can encounter it, become radicalized, and know what to do? And so that you have plausible deniability. Correct. Because all I did was write a novel about the coming race war and what a responsible white person should do. I think of it a little bit like an iceberg where the individual actors are like the tip, but then underneath the water, there's a lot undergirding 
that tip of the iceberg. Yes. And so, look, this guy is not the member of some group necessarily. He's not he, He's not in the local clan chapter. He's not in a, like in the, the natural ways we would think about it. But this person has been interacting with propaganda that's been particularly and specifically put out in specific ways to get him to do the type of thing he did. And the shooter in this case, in his manifesto, he specifically says, like, I am the sole perpetrator of this attack. He wants to be seen in that way. So you can see how he himself is trying to shape the the narrative of who he is and who's responsible. Which, again, is exactly what Timothy McVeigh did in Oklahoma City in the 90s. Right. This entire era, at this point, going back decades of white supremacist violence, this is how it operates. Much of the media analysis of what happened in Buffalo has honed in on the Great Replacement theory and how it informed the shooter, which makes sense because he talks about replacement a lot in that manifesto document. And I think we need to talk about it, too. But I think it's important to say at the outset that Great Replacement theory, at least to me, is like a piece of the white supremacy puzzle. It's like a tool of white supremacy. Great replacement theory almost sounds too neutral to me. Like it's not, <laughs> yeah, it's not alarming enough. But I also think it gives it too much credit. It, it, it tries to make it a novelty, right? If only we stopped this theory, it would. And, and I don't think that is quite. I, I think sometimes when we talk about white supremacy and, and white supremacist ideology, we can be both too specific and not specific enough. And, and so what I mean by that is like we hyper focus on like, quote unquote, great replacement theory, or we hyper focus on 4chan, or we hyper focus, and it's like, and and it's like, yeah, but the po- it's not really about these hyper specifics, about the bigger, broader thing, right? No two white supremacists have the exact same ideology, but almost all of them hold some very specific tenets that, that are true across the board, right? The idea- ideology of white supremacy is that one, there are racial distinctions between the races, right? That race is a biological truth. It's those people versus us over here. Exactly. Two, that there's a conflict between the races, right? Um, And that the white race is under threat. Three, that the Jews are the ones coordinating this threat. And four, increasingly so now in the American context, that this threat that the white people are losing and that they need to be revolutionary in their attempts and their actions, right? And so, sure, what we see is, quote unquote, great replacement theory. It's a term, great replacement is coined in a French novel uh, that's a kind of a dystopian race war novel. Um, so in that context, it's about Muslims, right? And we've seen that that language migrate over here. But this is no different than what the Klan of the 1920s was preaching. This is no different than what the Aryan nations were preaching in the 1980s, right? And so we see this play out over and over and over again. And so the key to understanding this is not to go read the French novel that coined the term, right? Because it's not even really specifically about this. It's much more about this bigger and broader idea that has been true and consistent in white supremacist thinking for centuries. I'm glad that you put your finger on the anti-Semitism that's involved in Great Replacement Theory and white supremacy in general. Because in this shooter's manifesto, he talks about Jewish people and 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 sort of says, I'm setting them to the side for now. They can be dealt with later. But the quote unquote high fertility replacers will destroy us now. And it's just some of the ugliest writing I've read ever. But I think there, because the focus 
of his shooting was on Black victims, it may obscure for some people the connections between other groups who are also part of this ideology and singled out by this ideology. I think it's very understandable why we focus sometimes on the individualized threats that brothers and sisters among us face, right? I understand why after the shooting in Buffalo, we talk about white supremacist violence against black people. I understand why after Tree of Life, we focus on uh, anti-Semitism against Jewish people. I understand why after El Paso, we focus on anti-immigrant violence, right? But to understand and to research and look at these shooters, we understand that these white supremacist ideologies hate all of us and that they and that we can't actually cleave we we can't look at and prevent this type of anti-black violence without understanding anti-semitism we can't we can't just look at anti-semitism in tree of life without also understanding the role that immigrants play right the reason that synagogue was shot up according to the shooter is because they had been helping with refugee resettlement right that again it was this theory that jewish people were helping to accelerate this type of demographic replacement and so it's all of these things are intertwined that all of these groups are in the crosshairs of white supremacists. And and so we can't talk about white supremacists and not talk about anti-Semitism. When we come back, is right-wing punditry to blame for sending people down the white supremacy rabbit hole? Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) 
and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. In the days since the Buffalo attack, many pundits have started looking to Fox News as they try to explain the way white supremacist ideology has gone mainstream in this country. In particular, many have pointed to Tucker Carlson, who's dedicated hours of his show to selling the idea that Democrats are enabling a migrant surge at the border a surge that he says will keep conservatives out of office. They're trying to change the population of the United States. And they hate it when you say that because it's true, but that's exactly what they're doing. How much longer do you think Americans will put up with this? How long before Americans start to take border enforcement into their own hands? Every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a Mm. current voter. No, they're not allowed to do that. Why are we putting up with this? But Wesley says... There's a subtle difference between the Fox News version of Great Replacement Theory and what the Buffalo shooter had in mind. The shooter wasn't interested in winning political power. Tucker Carlson is. The partisan political talking points around demographic replacement, the things you might hear from Tucker Carlson or from Ben Shapiro or from any number of right-wing commentators, is that the country is changing demographically that Democrats are encouraging that demographic change because they can't win white voters anymore. And so they want more black people and Latinos and Muslims. So they're making about elections. Correct, that it's about a partisan political thing. Now, what I'll say, and one of the things they cite is some writing on the left, uh, the demographics equal destiny framework that was popular among moderate Democrats post Obama's election. This idea that the browning of the country would potentially create a supermajority for Democrats. Now, that was short-sighted. It was dumb. It was wrong. It wasn't true. It ignores what we know about immigrant groups in the United States, which is that eventually many of them become conservative um, as they become what we would consider whiter, right? That um, And so we, we see now all these pieces being written about, can you believe that this Latino district near the border is hyper-conservative? And it's like, yes, I can believe that. That's how immigrants have always worked, whether those immigrants were Irish or Italian or Jewish or, or now Latino. But what the, again, what Ben Shapiro or Tucker Carlson or other people would, would seize on is they would say, look, Democrats have been saying this. They've been saying that the way they're going to change the country is demographically. As Texas becomes browner, as Georgia becomes browner, as Tennessee and Arkansas become browner, that they're going to be able to win. And all we're doing is warning our conservative viewers about that. We're saying, look, this is what the Democrats are doing. Look, I don't believe that Tucker Carlson or Ben Shapiro wanted this shooter to go murder these black people. I I, I don't believe that. And and that's a level of good faith that I think not everyone on the left would give to them, right? I I don't think they wanted that. I don't don't think Tucker Carlson is secretly a Klansman. I don't think Ben Shapiro is either. But what I do think is true is I think that very often figures on the right use rhetoric that is irresponsible – given what white supremacists are saying. And I think what you're saying is that like the demographic changes are real. Yes. Like, this is happening. 
But the question becomes, why is it salient? What does it mean? Well, and it's salient because there's no more powerful force in the history of humanity than us being scared of people who are different than us storming the gates. For the history of, of our species, right? This is the thing we're scared of is those other people over there. And what we see is that if I watch a monologue on Fox News that is telling me the Democrats are shipping in all of these people to change the demographics of the country, and then I search these terms, I'm going to end up on a white supremacist website, right? It becomes this accelerant. And so, and again, and I'm not saying that he knowingly even does this, but it's real, right? And so again, it's this gateway drug. It becomes the things that gets you to search for the online community. When I went searching for evidence of mainstream politicians doing what you're talking about here, sort of playing footsie with white supremacist ideas, I have to say I was kind of shocked by how open many of them were. Like, here's a few things I found. I found an ad for the Senate candidate in Ohio, J.D. Vance, where he literally asks, are you you a racist? Do you hate Mexicans? The media calls us racist for wanting to build Trump's wall. They censor us, but it doesn't change the truth. I mean, that's that's pretty loud and clear. I found Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin talking openly about how you know this administration, the Biden administration, wants open borders, and you have to ask yourself why. Is it really they want to remake the demographics of America to ensure they're that they stay in power forever? Is that what's happening here? Because I found the, 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 the lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, saying, you know, this is essentially an attempt to take over the country and have open borders. The revolution has begun. 18 years, if every one of them has two or three children, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of new voters. And they will thank the Democrats and and Biden for bringing them here. Who do you think they're going to vote for? It was very alarming to me because I felt like all of these things were happening individually with local politicians and maybe getting a little bit of attention. But it's much more powerful when you add it all up. I do think a fair amount about of this is that, as I said earlier, we like to think of racism as, as an individual thing. We don't like to think about racism as an ideology, as a belief system, as a structure. And when we think about it as an individual problem, it removes us any responsibility from us to make sure that we are not, as long as I am not individually doing racism, I'm fine. I can say whatever I want. I can use whatever rhetoric I can. When we understand white supremacy as this developed coherent, complex ideology, it requires us to be particularly careful and particularly uh, prudent about what rhetoric we use and what rhetoric we do not use. And so think about what that would look like if you were a Republican politician who is worried about the border, about demographic change, about what that might do to American culture or society, whatever, 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 right? What would it look like to express those concerns and those grievances while also making explicitly clear that you give no quarter to these people? It would look like Liz Cheney. It would look very, very different than what we see on Fox News, what we hear from. It would not be there's an invasion, white people be scared. But of course, I hate racism. But the issue becomes what happens when you have a political party in your country that is almost exclusively white and one of the most powerful things to mobilize those people are bigoted prejudicial views. The incentive structure, if you are J.D. Vance, if you are, if you're, if you're whomever you are, is 
to flirt with these with these ideas. So what would a robust political or journalistic response to all this look like? Because I look at what's happening now and I sense a lot of fear. Like Joe Biden is supposed to go to Buffalo. We're speaking on Tuesday. He's going to Buffalo today to speak. And I would just worry that the people who are driving the narrative might not connect the dots fully here. I think there are a few things. I think sometimes there's a dissonance between how they connect the dots in private and what they believe they can do in public, again, because of this incentive structure. With the way our country and our electorate works, where we still live in a majority white country, and that majority increases when you start looking at the people who vote as opposed to the people who live here, right? You cannot win elections without significant portions of white America. And we know significant portions of white Americans hold racially bigoted views. Suddenly for Joe Biden or whomever, there's a different incentive structure, no matter what they believe personally, no matter what they might think, right? And that's not even getting into the conversation about whether or not those politicians might themselves have biases, where they might not want to believe that it, that these things are true of their fellow white Americans, right? That again... When you look at someone like Joe Biden, Joe Biden can't get elected without a significant portion of white voters. And and so he has to make a calculus. Nancy Pelosi can't hold the House without a significant portion of white voters. You, You can never win the Senate as Democrats unless you can win in extremely white states. Is it possible to tell the truth and attract those white voters? I think the version of that question in the media is, is it possible for us to tell the truth about the world we live in and be trusted by the inhabitants of this world who who are inclined not to believe some of these things? Do you think it is? I'm not sure that it is. And, and frankly, I'm not sure that that's our problem, right? I, I don't know that our job in the media is to be, is to poll well. I don't know that our job is to be popular. I think our job is to tell the truth, to write down true things. I'm not fully convinced that our job is to be trusted by everyone because in order think about it this way right we currently live in a country where again half of republican voters believe barack obama was not born in this country that's a lie it's a racist lie if my job as a media outlet is to find a way to be trusted by those people i'm never going to be able to tell the truth because simply by saying the true thing they are going to decide i'm untrustworthy And so what do we do with this, right? We live in a society where the truth itself has become so polarized and and that people exist in these worlds they've constructed in their own heads, that if our job in the media is to tell the truth, to expose new truths, to to create, how do we do that when we know that there are big, massive subsections of people who will never believe true things? You are not leaving me on an optimistic note here. I, I, I cannot do that for you. <laughs> you picked the wrong podcast guest. Wesley, I'm really, really grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great conversation. Wesley Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He covers race and justice in America. White supremacy is a poison. It's a poison. Running through it really is. After Wesley and I got off the line, Joe Biden did speak in Buffalo and he connected the dots, saying violence at this supermarket 
was part of a larger pattern, one he thought was likely to repeat itself. As we can, we've seen in these hate-filled attacks represent the views of a hate-filled minority. We can't allow them to distort America, the real America. We can't allow them to destroy the soul of the nation. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Carmel Del Shad, and Elena Schwartz. We are getting help each and every day from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Joanne Levine and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. See pictures of my dog. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. I'll see you back in this feed tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.